0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want?
1: Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Get Growing with New Zealand Gardener is brought to you with support from Bunnings Warehouse. Hi there, and welcome to episode two of Get Growing with New Zealand Gardener. I'm Jo McCarroll, and I am the editor of New Zealand Gardener magazine, and with me is Rachel Clare, who edits our weekly e-zine, Get Growing. What have you been doing in your garden, Rachel?
2: Well, Jo, over the weekend, I made my seven-year-old come to the garden centre with me. He had a great time just trying to load the trolley up with as much stuff as he could Courgettes, cucumbers, capsicums, kamikamis. He put three watermelons on. I didn't want to grow three watermelons. I've never grown a watermelon successfully, but we are now growing watermelons. And so we had a really good time planting those out. What did you do in your garden this weekend?
1: Well, actually, I um, went out on the weekend on a friend's boat and they said, could you bring a green salad? So I thought, well, I've got so much in the garden that could go in a green salad. So I picked all the different sorts of lettuces I have, which are about four or five sorts, and I threw them all together. And then I thought, well, you know, the reality is this is from my organic garden. The chance of there being a slug there, well, it's it's pretty high, um, even with some careful washing. So, I, and I'm pretty laissez-faire about that myself. But I thought, well, these people—they're not gardeners. So I had the brilliant idea of throwing a whole lot of edible flowers in just to mix it up, so they just think that was a, a rare slimy edible flower.
0: <laughs>
1: I'm really impressed that you have friends with boats. <laughs> So in terms of what to do in your own garden right now, um, I'd say it's a good time to sow a lot of root crops. Um, Now, that's things like beetroot and radishes and carrots and swedes and turnips. And um, in my garden, I've been sowing carrots. Now, with all root crops, I'd suggest you sow direct, which means you sow the seed where you want the plant to grow. And that's because all of these crops send off a long tap root down the bottom. And if you disturb that when you're transplanting, crop's just not really going to thrive for you. You're going to get spindly kind of roots and not the big fat roots that you're looking for. Um, Now, the challenge with carrot seed is it's super, super fine. So when you sow it, it's really easy for those plants to be too close together and then your carrots won't have the room to grow nice and fat. So there's a few tricks you can use to space your carrot seed more evenly. Um, You can mix it with sand when you sow it, which just spaces it out, Or you can mix it with radish seed. Um, And that way the radishes, which are very, very quick to crop, they'll be Um, harvested before the carrot is getting too big and they will space the carrot seed out for you too. Um, Otherwise if you're really new to gardening, one real fail safe way of growing carrots from seed is to use the seed tape. The seed is embedded in the tape and you bury the tape along the garden and the carrots come up perfectly spaced.
2: I really like that idea because when I sow carrots I never get around to thinning them out and then they're all really spindly. Yeah. Well I've been netting my strawberries because the birds have been eating them Normally the kids get to them first, but the birds have been sitting there eating them and I keep finding half-eaten strawberries in the garden and it's really annoying. So um, I've got some netting to put over them, so I'm going to do that. But in the meantime, I've just put the, you know, hanging baskets, have the wire frame, I've put those upside down over them. Now, birds can also dig up your seedlings, which is a real pain. So there are a couple of things you can do. You can hang holographic tape up, which you can buy um, from places like buddings. They've got a specific ones for birds. You can hang that up kind of around your crops, and that will stop them from digging up your seedlings. And you know what, Joe? There are even some companies that sell strobe lights for birds. Like Bird Disco? Like Bird Dance Party.
1: Well, look, I have also um, put in a few eggplants. Um, Now, my real um, trick for eggplants, which is perhaps a little bit cheating, is to put in grafted eggplants. Now, grafted eggplants are eggplants that have been grafted or joined on to a rootstock that is not their original roots. And that's normally done with plants when you want them to grow more quickly or fruit sooner or have a heavier crop. It's a real good trick with eggplants because they need a really long, hot summer. And even in my garden, which is in Auckland, and that's at the warmer end of the country, they can be a bit hit or miss for me on their own roots. Um, And they're a really good option if you've only got room for, say, one plant because you're going to have a much heavier yield on that grafted plant than you will on your plants that are on their own original roots.
2: I really
1: love eggplants, and no
2: one else in my family will eat them.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, they are quite easy and fun to grow. If you're down south somewhere and the crop's pretty marginal, this is one of those crops you can use a sort of heat-sinking technique by keeping them in pots, which will warm up that soil, that precious degree or two, um, and keeping them in black pots, which are going to absorb the the warmth from the sun, or growing them um, at something like the base of a wall or a fence, which is going to absorb the warmth from the sun, and that'll just get it a little bit warmer so hopefully you can still get a crop. Or go for the smaller eggplants because they're easier to grow in those marginal conditions.
2: Now I have been hanging um, codling moth traps in the fruit trees in the school orchard. I do gardening through the Garden to Table program at my children's school and we have an amazing orchard, but last year we got no apples at all. No apples or pears, they all had holes in them. And that was due to codling moth or perhaps guava moth. Now they're all on the wing now and the males are looking to mate. So when you hang a pheromone Trap in a tree. They lower the moth in because they've got the pheromone of the female moth. They kill a few, but they're not pest control in itself. You actually need to use a spray to get rid of coddling moth, and you can use one that has BTK in it.
1: Look, Rachel, I completely and absolutely support a physical barrier. I'm such a believer in a physical barrier as pest control, because if you can stop the pest reaching the fruit, you're not going to have the problem with the pest in the fruit. I think there was a line in one of the New Zealand Gardener magazines from the 1940s, you know, which was There is nothing so disconcerting as finding half a coddling moth in your apple.
2: Half a coddling moth, not a whole one, just half.
1: (laughs) It is worse to find half.
2: (laughs) Now, we have been looking after our lawn. Are you a lawn person?
1: No, lawn people are men.
2: Yeah, totally. I really, really don't care. But now is the time to start cutting your lawn more regularly. And you need to do it about weekly up till Christmas. Do you even mow your lawn yourself?
1: I mean, I do. But I'm just saying there's a grass ceiling. Like, people who care about lawns are men. I mow the lawn because otherwise... It grows so high that I can't make it to my veggie patches. And finally, um, I've been mulching my garden. This is a really important thing to do with your garden. A mulch is a thick layer of organic matter that you lay on top of the soil. Um, and that not only helps keep water in the soil, um, it suppresses the growth of weeds. Um, and those weeds will otherwise be competing with your plants for the nutrients and water available. As that mulch breaks down, it's going to add organic matter to the soil, which really is the holy grail of what you want. To to do and that's going to improve your soil structure over time. So lay mulch. I'm I'm laying mulch now because we've had quite a wet spring and I can trap all that valuable water in the soil but mulch, mulch, mulch and mulch again. Even if you mulched earlier in the spring, mulch again.
2: Mulch is the secret.
1: Mm, I'd say mulch is good for your soil but soil is the real secret to success in the garden. Shut up. I think you'll find when you hear my masterclass that soil is the answer to all of your problems.
2: Another masterclass
0: begins.
1: So good soil, and that soil that's fertile and rich and well-structured, is really the most important factor to success in your garden. Good soil means that your plants will grow better, they'll fruit or flower for longer, and they'll resist pests and diseases much better than plants that are growing in soil that's poor or denuded or compacted. So even though we all want to rush out and plant and plant and plant, it's absolutely worth taking some time to work out what kind of soil you have and taking steps to improve it. And remember, both the worst soil and the best soil can be improved. The soil improvement you undertake will depend a little bit on the soil that you start with. But the main soil improver that you use is humus, which is well-rotted organic matter. Um, And this not only contains nutrients and feeds beneficial soil microorganisms, it also improves soil structure by allowing air into heavy soils and retaining moisture in lighter soils. Um, So you want to add organic matter at every opportunity. Um, that might be layering on compost, about half a wheelbarrow for a square metre of garden, using aged animal manure, green manures, chopped up seaweed. Um, you can even just dig a trench in the garden and fill it with compostable materials such as your veggie scraps, your grass clippings or your torn up newspaper. And of course you want to mulch, mulch and mulch again with organic matter that will break down over time and feed your soil. Now your soil is likely to be either sandy or clay or if you're really lucky, loam. Um, If you're not sure what kind of soil you have and you're starting in a new garden, um, just roll a handful of soil in between your fingers um, and then open your hand If the soil stays like a sausage and doesn't fall apart even when you poke at it, you've got clay soil. If when you open your hand it falls apart straight away, you've got sandy soil. If it holds together when you open your hand but falls apart when you poke at it, then you have hit the big Wednesday of soil because your soil is loam. Now, sandy soils drain well, so that means that they are not at risk of getting waterlogged. But of course, in the summer, that means they can't hold on to moisture so well and nutrients in the soil tend to wash straight through it. If you have sandy soil, while you're waiting to improve it, you might want to use, say, a slow-release fertilizer, such as organic blood and bone, rather than those highly soluble liquid fertilizers that you buy, because those nutrients can just wash straight away. If you've got heavy clay soil, it's not an entirely bad thing clay soils are very fertile and they hold on to nutrients really well but of course they also become waterlogged quite easily and because there's less air in them to start with they're prone to becoming compacted If you want to improve clay soil, you might want to add, say, grit or coarse sand, Uh, about one wheelbarrow full per square metre is about right, and that will improve the drainage over time. Don't use really fine sand, as that can actually block the pores of air that you want in your soil. And you can add lime or gypsum, uh, but don't do that every year, as it will change the salinity of the soil over time. Um, If you've just got clay soil and you're desperate to plant, you could just, as a short-term fix, pile about 10 or 20 centimetres of good topsoil over the top and plant straight into that. And actually, even if you have loamy soil, you should still make it a rule of green thumb, every time you plant a plant, to take an action that will improve your soil. Whether that's laying mulch or turning your compost or digging in your green crops. I mean, lots of gardeners, myself very much included, we are very distracted by the flowers and the vegetables and the trees and the cool wheelbarrows and the fun birdhouses. But actually, our gardens are only ever going to be as good as the soil that we grow in. And that is the dirty truth.
2: Our masterclasses will help you grow something epic with Bunnings Warehouse.
1: I'm just about to talk to the scientist, Dr. Heather Hendrickson, who's a senior lecturer at Massey University and whose particular expertise is in the evolution of bacteria and the discovery and the biology of bacteriophages, which are the viruses of bacteria. But I'm actually going to be talking to her specifically about soil bacteria, because while we might think that soil is this inert substance, it's actually absolutely teeming with life. So Heather, how many bacteria might be living in, say, a teaspoon of soil?
0: There can be up to 10 billion bacterial cells in a single gram of soil. These are rich, loamy types of soil that are around um, roots of plants and things like that. So it'll vary in different regions, but it can be as many as 10 billion bacterial cells.
1: Wow, we're completely outnumbered, even in that one teaspoon.
0: Yeah, right. It's actually it's hard to imagine the kinds of numbers that we're dealing with when we're talking about um, things in the microbial world. The planet has really been built over you know four billion years by the microorganisms that inhabited it first, and that still live inside of us and all around us.
1: Well, among all those multitudes, I want to talk about one bacteria in particular, which is the Microbacterium vaccae. Yes, that is a bacteria that's naturally found in soil. Have I understood that correctly?
0: That's right. So it's um, it's what's called a saprophyte, which means it's involved in you know the same kind of um, degradation of plant materials and things like that that a lot of other organisms are involved in, including you know protozoa and. Um, fungi and all sorts of things. So it, it's one of these organisms that we found um, in lots of different types of soil, um, often in gardens, um, that is doing the, the process of breaking things down.
1: And it's been the subject of some scientific research. And how did scientists get interested in this bacteria in particular?
0: So I've, I've managed to go back only to um, 15 years ago in 2004. So mycobacterium um, vaca had been found um, before that to be involved in um, positive immune system responses, uh, and so because it was known to have some kind of positive effect on the immune system and on... Um, cells that present antigens and things like that, the very first study that I can find that was done with humans, um, individual humans, was this fascinating thing by Mary O'Brien in the U.K., and she took Mycobacterium vacae cells that had been killed and injected them into cancer patients along with chemotherapeutic agents. So, half of the people in her trial had the addition of these um, dead bacteria and half of them didn't. And, you know... It's one of these great stories of um, negative results. So she didn't find any positive results in terms of um, decreasing the signs of cancer or increasing um, people's prospects that they had this kind of lung cancer that she was studying. But she said that the presence of the bacteria significantly improved the moods and the patient's quality of life in the case of the patients that had been injected with this um, dead bacterium. So that observation that there was this dramatic change in how people were feeling especially in a case where, you know, they're getting a cancer treatment, was kind of the beginning of the, this interest in um, Mycobacterium vaccae as, um, as, as something that can make us happy.
1: So she thought it might boost their immune response, but actually it boosted their mood and cognitive function.
0: Yeah, so that led to um, additional work being done um, by Chris Lowy at the University of Colorado at Boulder, amongst others, where they were working um, oftentimes with mice and trying to look at you know, what were the differences in things like serotonin, that neurotransmitter that can have a, a positive effect on people with depression, uh, has a lot of other effects as well, um, and what types of things were happening in these mice and also how did they react to stress.
1: So I know Christopher Lowy's results showed that when the mice were exposed to this bacteria, the parts of their brain that Produce serotonin just lit up. Yeah. And in terms of their stress levels, how did the mice react when they were given this bacteria?
0: Mice, as you know, often um, when they're in an environment that has a lot of open space to it, they're very hesitant creatures um, and they pause. When they're faced with um, an alpha mouse, uh, a mouse that's supposed to be the mouse in charge, they um, they have differing um, types of behaviors and those are the types of situations that they put these mice in and they saw that these mice showed behavior that was far less stressed. So all of these stress-induced reactions were decreased Um, and the, the mice were actually able to do things like solve mazes faster than they would have without the presence of these bacteria.
1: And I think there are actually some other health benefits that have been shown when children are exposed to a really diverse range of soil bacteria aren't there?
0: Yeah, so so you're getting into um, this wonderful hypothesis that that um, as an evolutionary biologist I love and I wish I wish we knew everything about it, but it's quite complex. And this is called sometimes the um, hygiene hypothesis or the old friends theory. Um, and it was called old friends by um, Graham Rook at the University of College London, who's a microbiologist, and he suggested that the increases that we see today in um, Autoimmune conditions, in um, asthma, even developing in very young children and in um, allergies, all of these sorts of things might be a result of the fact that we are living in an increasingly sterilized world, a world where we're not coming into contact and exposing ourselves, especially early in development, to these old friends, these microbes. And, you know, little parasitic worms or amoeba or all of these things in our environment that as we were evolving, we would have been more in touch with all of these microorganisms that are in the soil. So this is a hypothesis that's um, gaining some traction and there have even been some studies that suggested that if you are a child in a family in the countryside, you are less likely to develop things like autoimmune diseases and allergies. If you are a child in a family that has older siblings that might be, you know, coming in and smearing dirt on your face <laughs> and doing the kinds of things that older siblings do, um, you might be less likely to get allergies and autoimmune diseases. And and one of the findings has even been if you have a dog in your family, a dog that kind of runs out in the countryside. Or runs out in the dirt and brings in, you know, dog dander and those types of um, exposures, that all contributes to to young children having healthier immune systems and being less likely to develop these types of uh, allergies or immune problems.
1: This is just so fascinating, Heather. So, what, as I understand it, the science supports the fact that gardeners are happier, healthier, smarter, and less stressed than people who don't (laughs) garden.
0: Yeah, I mean, this this science really suggests that even um, just getting outside and exposing yourself to soil, you know, making sure our kids are being exposed to soils... Um, we come into contact with these organisms that m- might be providing protective effects that we are still really on the, you know, in the beginnings of trying to understand all of the downstream effects of um, that sort of thing. But these guys that study Mycobacterium vaccae and have been doing these studies into where you find them suggest that, you know, in your spinach garden, um, when you are growing food, you are eating these types of things, and they're having positive effects on you.
1: And is it that simple? Just, you know, if you want to get the benefits of this sort of natural antidepressant health tonic mood-boosting wonder bacteria, it's just getting out in the garden, touching the soil.
0: That's what this research suggests. I would love to see us take this further in New Zealand and, for example, um, measure in different types of soil in New Zealand, where do we find these types of microorganisms? Are there particular types of plants that really foster the, um, the prevalence of these types of microorganisms? I think that there, there are these um, interesting types of studies that you can imagine us doing right here in order to see, like, to what degree can we push this and really encourage um our environment to positively affect our health
1: oh that would be just so fascinating to know and i believe we should be immediately funding that research although i'm pretty sure the answer will be that gardening is the secret to a long and happy life thanks so much heather it's been wonderful (laughs) talking to you and yet another reason as if we needed one to get out in the garden this weekend now let's check the mailbag and see what questions have come in this week
2: the mailbag is exploding with questions, Joe. One of them is one that we get quite often, which is from Jackie Harrison and Kerry Kerry. And she says, I wonder if anybody can tell me why some of my leaves on my garlic have gone brown. I've never grown it before and I'm not sure what to expect.
1: Well, I'd say at this time of year, that's probably, sadly, garlic rust.
2: Yep, rust never sleeps.
1: Rust never sleeps in the garden. I mean, don't be completely alarmed if the leaves on your garlic brown off later in summer because of course that's usually a sign it's time to lift your garlic it's ready to ready to harvest but right now it probably unfortunately is this fungal disease that garlic is very very vulnerable to.
2: Yeah, garlic's way more vulnerable to rust than spring onions and brown onions. They get rust too, but garlic will succumb first. Unfortunately, that can reduce the size of your bulbs and it ruins them for storage. But there are a couple of things you can do.
1: Yeah, you can take off the affected leaves just as soon as you see them and dispose of them. Uh, but don't dispose of them in your compost. Put them in a waste refuse or uh, burn them if you can access to an open fire. Um, and make sure when you're planting your garlic, you've got good circulation around your plants because of course like all fungal diseases any kind of rust really thrives in damp and close conditions.
2: Avoid watering the foliage don't overuse a high nitrogen fertilizer as well and something you can do as a natural control is spray with neem oil in summer organic lime sulphur spray or copper oxychloride in winter.
1: But all of those things, unfortunately, they're preventative rather than a cure. So it's not great news, Jackie. Really sorry to hear about it. But next year, try planting your garlic in a different place because those fungal spores will stay in the soil.
2: Today we're going to talk to John Balgen who lives in Reefton. Now I met John by accident coming home from my summer holiday and we decided to stop off in Reefton. And I was looking at the local primary school in Reefton and I couldn't believe my eyes because there in front of me on their sports grounds was a whole entire field planted in lavender with a few pink hydrangeas. John drove up in his four-wheel drive and said, it's okay to look at the plants, but don't stand on the new ones. And I said, what what are you doing growing all this lavender here? And what are you doing, John?
3: Well, we have planted the largest New Zealand flag in the world out of lavender. And soon, now that it's been in fourth season coming, we'll be going for the uh, world record with the Guinness Book of Records.
2: Oh, my goodness. So what gave you the idea of growing a flag out of lavender?
3: Now I bought the school, and I was um, out the back on the playing fields thinking, wonder what I could do with this. But I had had this idea about planting a flag and doing it out of something that was commercially viable, uh, i.e. you could use the byproducts from it. And it was at the time of the flag referendum, which you may recall. Ah, so I see, yeah. um, one thing, one plus one equaled about 22. And before you know it, we were planting two and a half thousand uh, lavender plants. And it's 60 metres by 30 metres, so it's even got the union jack. We had to lay the whole thing out. I became an expert at pro-ratering all the lines and working out the size of it. And uh, it was all marked out in the ground with spray cans. And uh, then we spent a lot of time uh, tilling the soil, because it had been compacted over the years and figured that if it grows well in Provence where it's hot in summer and cold in winter mm. that we would do the same thing here. Uh, it would work in Richmond because we're very hot in summer and we're quite cold in winter. So put a lot of lime in the soil, then got some lime chip put over the top and started planting.
2: And what have you used for the Union Jack? Is that the ready pink hydrangeas?
3: So we've got three colours of... A lavender, there's a Pacifica, which is a well, I'm colorblind, but I call it blue, but I think it's more but more purple. Uh, there's a pink lavender and a white lavender, but the trouble is they flower at slightly different times. So we've put red hydrangeas in with the pink, and they flower at the same time as the Pacifica. So we're all we're all laughing, and ironically, the pink one was supposed to be the hardest to grow, and that's growing the best out of the whole lot. So it's uh, rip and suits it.
2: And what are you doing with the lavender? Are you distilling it to make
0: oil?
3: Yep. So we bought a uh, still a couple of years ago, and um, quite a big one. And we've all learned how to do it. It'd uh, be fair to say the first batch didn't uh receive rave reviews from the lavender society but the the next batch the next year we'd learned quite a bit from it and that uh f- fared better and uh we're hoping this year it will be um, right up there in the awards
2: and it will be available for sale
3: yeah so you get the you get two two products from it one is you get the um Obviously, the oil, which is not you don't get a lot, and mm. about a litre per hundred plants, if you if it's a good year, and then you get, but you get a lot of hydrosol, so lavender water, and we're using that to do all sorts of things. Uh, great it's a great spray and we're selling it you know put on your pillows and so forth but it's also uh, goes down to the uh, tea rooms and they make a beautiful lavender shortbread using that water because uh, the taste is comes through and the mm-hmm. smell uh and then of course we're selling flowers all over the countryside to people who've come by not unlike yourself and uh flowers and the seeds and everything else
2: so does it look like a flag yet
3: yes it does and uh but we're hoping this year, uh, come January, that all the plants be holding hands and so just be a mass of um, flowers, a mass of blue or with the the right red and white and for the stars and Union Jack. And uh, in the last year it was getting towards that but you can still see some of the lime chip we put down in between. So
2: you've already got a couple of world records, haven't you?
3: I do. I've got three.
2: Tell me about them, because they're not related to lavender.
3: No, it's for travel. So I got a world record for the most countries visited in a single journey, or six-month journey, and that was 191. And so it was such a crazy thing that it'll never be beaten. I don't think no one else is stupid enough to do it. And the other two were related to that. So the intention is to go to the Guinness Book of Records and um, submitting that. And there'll be number four, because I can't see any other flag being bigger.
2: And finally, what do the locals think?
3: Um, They think it's probably the, the, the craziest folly that one could do. But now they are really quite keen on it and they all want to come and help and weed it. And, and they certainly want the byproducts from it, i.e., the oil and the, and the flowers and everything else. And the other thing we've done is, we've, in the first couple of years, we just gave the flowers away on the main street yeah. to locals and visitors alike. So that was uh, quite unique and uh, got a lot of attention. So we do it, but still do a bit of that.
2: Thanks so much for your time, John. And good luck with the world record. Let us know
1: how it goes.
3: Thank you very
1: much. Wherever your garden grows, grow something with bunnings. Let's go immediately to our murder in the garden.
2: Our gruesome murder.
1: What are we killing this week?
2: Wow, this week we are killing the maidenhair fern. Because
1: who has not killed a maidenhair fern?
2: They're kind of like Victorian maidens that need to be whirled around in a bath chair because they're invalids.
1: All they need is a tiny white lace handkerchief. Anyway, they are. They're real divas. From temperature to water to sunlight, um, you know, direct sun will scorch them, but too little light will mean they grow really poorly, and their fronds will go yellow. So they need to be in a location, ideally with indirect morning or afternoon sun.
2: Yeah, and never let them dry out. If you cannot remember to water a maidenhair fern, get a cactus or a fake plant.
1: Uh, honestly, they just cannot tolerate dry air, and that's why, of yeah. course, you often hear people have success with them in the bathroom.
2: Yeah, and my grandmother had a monster. Made in here, Fern. It was quite amazing. And she would actually just get the whole thing and dunk it in a bucket of water and wait till the bubble stopped coming up. So she'd do that probably every couple of weeks.
1: Really does sound like a murder.
2: In between watering it regularly.
1: I've not tried that, but I do know you've got to keep watering it. And even in the bathroom, you might want to mist it with water or potentially leave like a, a shallow dish of water near it to increase the humidity because that's what it really will need.
2: So I've heard of a really cool technique where if your plant's died, you think there's no return for it, what you do is that you snip off any long fronds, you set it alight, be careful, do not write into us if you singe your eyebrows, I've warned you, take it outside, leave it in a cool shady place, make sure it's got some water, and in a couple of weeks your maidenhair fern may rise like a phoenix from the ashes.
1: Oh, I have never heard of such a thing. I don't know if I can believe it. The very idea of setting your beloved plants on fire, I've, I've come over all faint. Where are my smelling salts?
2: Poor dear Joe, let me take you out into the garden and wheel you around in your bath chair.
1: I'm too overcome to carry on this week, Rachel, but hopefully we can talk again next week about more of what's going on in our gardens and give you some inspiration for yours. Farewell.